Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have four relatively new movies to review for you. One is brand new. The others have come out in previous weekends. In fact, there was one that came out in theaters last year, and that's the one that I'm going to say I'm I'm playing Oscar catch-up on in reviewing it for this show because there are several movies that have been nominated for major Oscars, not necessarily Best Picture, but some other ones that I will be reviewing later in the show. But first, I'm going to get to the newest one that is probably going to be making the most money this weekend. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Magic Mike's Last Dance. This is, of course, the third movie in the Magic Mike trilogy that started with the movie Magic Mike from 2012 and its sequel, Magic Mike XXL, from 2015. Full disclosure, I haven't actually seen to this day the original uh, Magic Mike film. Uh, When it came out, I wasn't hosting words on film, so... I thought, nah, male strippers, not my thing. I'll just go see something else. But I did actually see Magic Mike XXL, kind of breaking my rule about seeing sequels, which is, and I've broken this rule a few other times before, but with sequels, I have a rule that I have to see the original before I see the sequel. But I made an exception with Magic Mike XXL, uh, mainly because it was probably one of the only new movies out Uh, around the time that it came out. But I'm semi-familiar with the whole uh, Magic Mike saga, uh, even though I haven't seen the the first film. But Magic Mike XXL was a movie that I did not expect to like, but I actually did. I liked the story, and I especially liked the camaraderie between the five main characters. There was Mike, who was played by Channing Tatum, There was Richie, who goes by a nickname that I can't say on this show because this is a PG-rated show. Richie was played by Joe Magniello. There was also Ken, played by Matt Bomer. Tito, played by Adam Rodriguez. And the eldest of the five exotic male dancers, Tarzan, who was played by Kevin Nash. But in Magic Mike's Last Dance, unlike the last two Magic Mike films, it's just Channing Tatum. Granted, the other four actors who I mentioned make a very brief, literally phoned-in cameo here. So it's pretty much all Channing Tatum. But in this film, Channing Tatum returns as Mike. And at the end of Magic Mike XXL, he retires from um, his exotic dancing job and starts his own furniture company. And we're told in very brief exposition in the very beginning of this film that he actually lost his furniture company because of the pandemic, which seems kind of odd to me because it, it seems like furniture companies, maybe unlike other industries, would be, shall we say, pandemic-proof. Everybody needs furniture, right? But regardless, we're just told very briefly that he lost his company and is now making ends meet as a bartender. But it turns out the woman who hired him as a bartender, whose name is Maxandra Mendoza, Max for short, who's played by Salma Hayek in this film, knows about his other gig and 
wants to employ his services, not for the reasons that you might think, but also to start um, a male dancing show at a theater she owns in London that's called The Radigan. And it's, as I said, uh, Channing Tatum is taking center stage in this. He's choreographing the show, and he also hires some dancers who are in the London area. However, unlike the previous Magic Mike films, this is probably the biggest disappointment. The male dancers in this film are really, really good at dancing, but unlike the five main dancers in the first two Magic Mike films, their personalities are not given center stage, and you also don't really know how they interact with one another except for the choreography and the the simultaneous dance moves. So that was probably one of the bigger disappointments of Magic Mike's Last Dance, but that's not to say I didn't enjoy it. The dance that, or rather the show that happens at the very end of the movie is actually well worth it. And as I was watching the film, it reminded me very much, I think thematically, of the film Staying Alive, which is the film that was directed by Sylvester Stallone and starred John Travolta, who is reprising his role as Tony Manera from Saturday Night Fever. And Staying Alive, I think, is unfairly maligned. It's not that bad a film, but the Broadway production that happens at the end is very laughable, and that's probably one of the things that turned people the most off from the movie Staying Alive. And I think that an advantage that Magic Mike's Last Dance has over Staying Alive is the fact that the end show is really good. It, it, it's, <laughs> it made me kind of jealous of these people who dance for a living and are very good at dancing, but <laughs> the, the, the end show is well worth it. Another thing that is the selling point of this film is that even though we could have used those other five dancers with whom Channing Tatum shared screen time in the first two Magic Mike films, especially Joe Manganiello, who is one of the coolest guys in the world, I did think that the chemistry between Channing Tatum and Salma Hayek was on fire. It was really good, and not just from the first impressively choreographed dance that Channing Tatum performs for Salma Hayek. And it does go into some R-rated territory. I won't exactly describe the details of it, but it is very enticing and it is very sexy. And the moment that Salma Hayek's character begins to speak to Channing Tatum's character, just speak to them, um, speak to him, I immediately got a sense of the chemistry, even when they weren't in the same shot. And that's very uh, impressive for this kind of movie. So I can't exactly say that this is a better movie than Magic Mike XXL. What it, what it um, lacked was the camaraderie between all the dancers in this film. I, I kind of wish that rather than seeing their dance moves only, I could have gotten a bit more character from them. But... There were some other very impressive scenes, not just ones that were very well uh, choreographed, but also some other ones that exposed some uh, great uh, character development from some of the other people here. Of course, Channing Tatum and Salma Hayek were electric in this film, undeniable. 
uh, undeniably. But there was also another very impressive performance in this film from the actress who plays uh, Salma Hayek's daughter, who is actually um, one of the uh, the person who narrates this film. I thought she did a particularly great job. She definitely had some zingers for lines. And there's also some other people in this film, some other archetypes that you might expect, like the stuffy uh, British butler, as well as the frumpy um, person who works for the government, who also manages stages all over London, especially Piccadilly Circus. But overall, I really thought that the, the film was definitely electric. And I wouldn't say... I can't exactly speak for whether or not it's better than the original Magic Mike film because I haven't seen it, but it's not better than Magic Mike XXL because it really needed that camaraderie. So for that reason, I give Magic Mike's Last Dance my rating of a high checkout. What would have made it a knockout is if some of the dancers maybe would have had some more personalities besides their dance moves and sometimes they're smiling when they're listening to... Mike Lane, Channing Tatum's character, give them stage direction. But overall, I thought the characters that were well-developed were most especially well-developed. Channing Tatum and Salma Hayek together made this film certainly worth watching. It just missed greatness because of that lack of character development from some of the people that you would have expected to see character development from, especially from a movie about male dancers. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Shotgun Wedding. This is a film that is an Amazon original, and you can watch it today by way of Prime Video. It premiered on Amazon Prime or on Prime Video on February 4th, 2023. And it is a film that you would think would be good for... A Valentine's Day weekend, which it just might, either this weekend or next weekend, but unfortunately it is full of bland characters and some romantic comedy and action movie cliches that it is totally not worth recommending. The film stars Jennifer Lopez and Josh DeHommel as two people who are getting married in the Philippines who are at first having second thoughts about having such a lavish wedding. But then, regardless of whether or not they had their best laid plans or not, their wedding is taken over by Filipino pirates who want to extort money from Jennifer Lopez's character's father, Robert Rivera, who is played by Cheech Marin. And this movie is directed, actually, by Jason Moore, who had previously directed such films as all three Picture Perfect... Oh, actually, excuse me. Um, the, the first uh, Picture Perfect movie, as well as the 2015 comedy Sisters, starring Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Both of those films 
were very good. Shotgun Wedding, unfortunately, falls flat for a number of reasons. I should also note that the story in the screenplay is written by Mark Hammer, who had previously written a film called Two Night Stand from 2014, which I haven't actually seen. So Shotgun Wedding is definitely Mark Hammer's first high-profile script that's been turned into a movie. And I'm not sure if it's Mark Hammer's writing or maybe some of the studio interference, but the film is overall very weak despite having a relatively strong cast. For example, Jennifer Lopez has generally been pretty strong in romantic comedies. Granted, a year ago she was in a romantic comedy called Marry Me, which was very formulaic and Certainly predictable in a lot of areas, but what I appreciated about the movie Marry Me was was her genuine chemistry with Owen Wilson in that movie. She was also in some other decent uh, romantic comedies, such as, for example, the film uh, Second Act, which made me root for her. Um, and of course, I mean, Hustlers wasn't a romantic comedy, but she was very good in that, which is, which makes me very surprised that Shotgun Wedding doesn't really do her very many favors. Granted, she kind of sidesteps that archetype of certain wedding movies, particularly wedding romantic comedies of late. The bride isn't a bitch in this one, but she's, but unfortunately, She's getting married in this film to a character who is particularly bland. Now, Josh DeHommel is, I'm not, first of all, even sure that I'm pronouncing his name right, but I'm just going to keep pronouncing his name like this because I don't quite know how else to pronounce it. I've seen him in other uh, films, and he's largely forgettable in many of them, I'm sorry to say, but... I actually did see one film that he was in uh, last year, or maybe it was the year before that. It was definitely during the pandemic. It was a film that was called uh, The Lost Husband. And in that film, he played a a rancher who uh, starts a romantic relationship with the city-dwelling character played by Leslie Bibb. I actually thought he was very good in that, and largely it was because his character was better developed, and his assets as a director and as a good-looking man were used very well in that film. And I feel like here, he was not only bland in his portrayal, he also was relatively underdeveloped. You kind of learn as the movie progresses that he's a minor league baseball player who's pushing 40. He definitely has major league ambitions, like I presume that every minor league baseball player has. But it, it looks very close to his... It looks very much like he is close to retirement and not going to be able to make that leap to the major leagues. But that's about all the interesting traits you kind of know about him. And he also has no chemistry in this film with Jennifer Lopez whatsoever. And there's also a a subplot where you learn that Jennifer Lopez's character, Darcy, 
has an ex-boyfriend who comes to the wedding. His name is Sean Hawkins, and he's played in this movie by Lenny Kravitz. And when Lenny Kravitz comes in on a private helicopter, you already presume that he's very well off. But uh, what his, his character is supposed to be is somebody you're supposed to root against. You're supposed to be rooting for... Josh DeHommel's character Tom and Jennifer Lopez's character Darcy to put aside their differences and get married. But when Jennifer Lopez and Lenny Kravitz have more chemistry together than Jennifer Lopez and Josh DeHommel, any kind of tension there flies right out the window. You're kind of wondering what Jennifer Lopez's character sees in Josh DeHommel. And there are some other people in this film who I would I would have presumed were well cast, and they're very good and very funny in other comedies in which they act. For example, Josh DeHommel's character's mother is played by Jennifer Coolidge, who is usually very funny and is sort of uh, making a comeback right now based on her recent uh, TV roles. And she's been acting for a really long time, so it's very good to see her make a comeback. It's just this is not her comeback vehicle, not by a long shot. And I couldn't, uh, you could definitely tell that Jennifer Coolidge was giving it her all in her role, but the lines that were just given to her were not funny. But she's given actually more of a service than Cheech Marin, who has almost nothing to do in this film. And for somebody with as much comic versatility as Cheech Marin to pretty much do and say nothing funny is really criminal and frankly inexcusable. In fact, the woman who plays... Jennifer Lopez's mother and Cheech Marin's character's ex-wife, Sonia Braga, has a few funny lines, but overall, I didn't really chuckle throughout this film. I thought that thematically, it was very predictable as a romantic comedy, well, as any comedy in general, let alone a romantic comedy, it just missed the mark on just about 99% of its gags as well as its lines. I thought the action was pretty decent, but this is an action romantic comedy, so it has to be funny, and it largely wasn't. And Josh DeHommel might be a convincing leading man in a romantic drama like the one I just mentioned, but he does not have comedy chops. Jennifer Lopez generally has more comedy chops, and you can definitely see her trying, but when she and Josh DeHommel have no romantic chemistry on screen whatsoever and are not particularly believable when they fight either, i.e. they don't have the kind of bad chemistry either, they just have no chemistry. And bad chemistry is better than no chemistry. Which is why Shotgun Wedding gets my rating of a flunk out. It's full of a lot of very talented actors here and there. And it does have a decent twist. But overall, it's not funny. The leads have no chemistry whatsoever. And it's just overall a waste of talent for everyone on screen. Plus, Jason Moore has directed better films. And it feels like this film was shot in paradise, but it felt like the director was using a bunch of A-listers and talented actors to go on vacation rather than to make a compelling film. And that's really too bad.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Missing, and this is a film that is in theaters now and premiered in theaters on January 20th, 2023. I did not get to review the film until now. I'm a little late to the party, but Missing is a film that subverts the tired found footage trope, but it also has a lot in common, in fact, a little bit too much in common, with a film that also, I think, more successfully subverted that genre, the movie Searching, which came out in 2018 and starred John Cho as a father who was desperately trying to search for his young daughter, Margot. Um, and also co-starring in the movie Searching was Deborah Messing, Joseph Lee, and Michelle La. And I saw that movie after being so sick and tired of seeing found footage movie after found footage movie, but Searching did something really unique. Yes, it was found footage, but it all took place on a laptop. And unlike other found footage movies that just relegated themselves to the genre of horror and almost cheapened themselves because of that searching ended up being a really good mystery and it had me hooked. Now searching was directed by Anish uh, Shaganti and the directors of the movie missing the one that came out this year that I'm reviewing for you right now are Nicholas Johnson and Will Merrick. But the, there must've been some, uh, collaboration between the movies Searching and Missing because at the very beginning of this film, it's established that the movie Searching is based on a true story. It isn't based on a true story, but in this cinematic universe, it, the movie Searching is an entirely different film uh, that is based on events that happened in the cinematic universe. I kind of wish they hadn't done that because all bringing up the movie Searching did was remind me that Searching was a better film. But the movie Missing is the same kind of concept. Somebody goes missing and you don't actually see real uh, or rather footage of them that's traditional for movies. Everything you see is on a computer screen from the Facebook chats to the uh, Skype uh, and FaceTime conversations as well. So everything you see is from the perspective of either news footage that somebody's streaming on YouTube or from a computer camera of some kind. Only this time, unlike the previous film where it's a father or a parent searching for their child, in this case, it is a child searching for her parents. So after her mother goes missing, a young woman who's Name is uh, June, who's played by Storm Reed, who was previously in the Walt Disney, Ava DuVernay directed film, A Wrinkle in Time. Uh, she goes searching for her mother, whose name is Grace, and she's played by Nia Long. And the only tools she has at her disposal, or most of the same tools, are ones that are on her computer screen that are available to her online. Now, does she call the police? Yeah, eventually she does. Does her search for her mother get sent up to the FBI? It does that as well. But there are some moments that are a little bit too, shall we say, not too good to be true, but definitely too convenient. 
There are times where the FBI is stuck and this teenage daughter um, uses her own devices left to her online to do some more digging to find her mother. And as I was watching the film, I was thinking to myself, it's not that the FBI is not computer literate. They most certainly are. The FBI uses computers all the time, and there would be no way that this teenage daughter would be able to utilize some of these this technology that the FBI probably wouldn't know already. At least I would presume they wouldn't, because if the FBI was this clueless about technology to the point where somebody who's not even 18 could figure out before they would, I would imagine a ton of people would be fired. Although maybe they would be, we just don't see it on this big screen that we do. But in in any event, Missing is a movie that certainly I would consider more creative and more of a unique found footage mystery if I hadn't seen uh, Searching to begin with. But Missing is a film that I think does subvert the found footage genre as well as the mystery genre, but not really in a lot of ways that Searching hadn't done before it. And there are also a lot of draggy moments, unlike in Searching, where I found myself at the edge of my seat trying to figure out how this father was going to find his daughter. And the twist in Searching, which I won't give away, is really good. Whereas the twist in the movie Missing... I could almost see coming based on what I saw in searching. And there must be some producer that has some that missing and searching shares. Certainly the writers and directors of both films are sort of the same. Actually, there's one writer by the name of Sev Ohanian who wrote the story to missing, but also co-write the story co-wrote the story and the screenplay to Searching. But whereas Searching took two people to write, Missing took three people to write, and it felt almost like Will Merrick and Nicholas D. Johnson, who also directed the film, sort of took Sev Ohanian's screenplay, or rather story, and just kind of carbon copied it, but just switched ages with the investigator and the victim. So Missing is not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. I did think actually that Nia Long and uh, Storm Reed were very believable as mother and daughter, but I just felt myself comparing this film to Searching, what Searching did right, Missing almost sort of carbon copied in terms of its revelation that the parent was going to be missing. That was almost carbon copied from searching as well as one of the twists in that it's one of the people that the daughter may or may not know. And when I say may or may not know, it's somebody she knows personally, but may not know as well as she thinks she does. And plus there is no way somebody who's not even 18 could 
make the kind of revelations or make the discovery that this teenage that, that this teenager does without the FBI figuring it out first. Now the FBI may be a lot of things. They are certainly not perfect. They've done a lot of things wrong over the last couple of decades, but the FBI is not stupid. So missing is a film that does miss the mark. And for that reason, it gets my rating of a high strikeout. The reason I'm giving it a high strikeout is because the acting in this film is really good. There are certainly some creative moments where they capture found footage on this desktop screen, which it does a, a lot better than some other found footage movies. And I put this definitely above probably about 95% of found footage movies in general, but definitely not above searching and it just reminded me way too much of searching to the point where I feel like it was semi plagiarized as opposed to inspired and reminding us that the movie searching existed near the very beginning of the film through its online found footage definitely does not make a case for the originality of this film. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Fablemans. And The Fablemans is a movie that's been out for a while. It's been out in theaters since November of uh, 2022. Uh, but I didn't get to review it until now. It, specifically, it came out, for, it first premiered at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, on September 10th, 2022, and it premiered in theaters nationwide on November 11th, 2022, and because of the fact that it has been nominated for uh, seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, probably most notably, it is likely that it will be in theaters for a while, and if it leaves theaters before the Academy Awards on March 12th, 2022, which I doubt it will, it will definitely be on streaming before you know it. But The Fablemans is Steven Spielberg's latest film that he has directed, and very much unlike his most recent efforts as a director, this movie is definitely inspired by Steven Spielberg's uh, life and his growing up. And it is a coming-of-age movie about a young man by the name of Sammy Fableman, who's played by uh, Gabriel LaBelle. And Sammy it aspires to become a filmmaker as he reaches adolescence, but soon discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth. So Steven Spielberg not only uh, directed this film, but he also wrote it along with Tony Kushner. And Steven Spielberg has an amazing track record for directing films. Last year, 
he did what was believed to be the impossible by directing his first movie musical ever. And hopefully it's not going to be his last, but there are some genres that Steven Spielberg can direct very well. He obviously had a firm grip on science fiction and action as demonstrated from Jaws, E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and those are just a few of his best films, which are now modern-day classics. He also has a great hand in directing not only drama but also historical drama, as is evidenced best from movies he's directed, especially Schindler's List, which is not only... Steven Spielberg's greatest film, but it's also one of the best films ever made, period. But he also had some great other uh, period pieces like recently War Horse, Lincoln, and Bridge of Spies, just to name a few. But last year, he directed West Side Story, and not only was West Side Story a great musical, it also, dare I say it, was better in many ways than the original West Side Story. So that, and it's very difficult because the original West Side Story, and I'll get to my review of the Fablemans in just a moment. The original West Side Story was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and won 10. Uh, the remake of West Side Story was nominated for seven Academy Awards, and it did win a handful of them. But still, I think it did a lot of things better than the original West Side Story. And I'm not going to get into that because I have to review the Fablemans. The Fablemans is a movie lover's movie, and especially people who are either film to, uh, filmmakers now or who aspire to be filmmakers and probably look up to Steven Spielberg will love this film. And I think a lot of the best elements of this, very similar to the science fiction film Super 8, which Steven Spielberg didn't direct, J.J. Abrams directed it, but Steven Spielberg produced it, this is a film, uh, this is a film that makes filmmaking not necessarily glamorous, but definitely awe-inspiring. And this is a film that could probably inspire people to become filmmakers and really followed the dreams that Steven Spielberg made a reality 50 to 60 years ago. But Gabriel, uh, Gabriel LaBelle does very well here as Sammy Fableman, but he is upstaged by many of the uh, supporting actors in this film, especially Michelle Williams, who plays his mother, uh, Mitzi Fableman, who's married to Bert Fableman, who's played by Paul Dano. And Bert Fableman works for IBM and is a computer engineer in a time, you know, the 60s and the 70s, where computers were a lot more elaborate than they are now. Now, granted, computing technology has come a long way, but in the 60s and 70s, computers were so big that they took up wall space, whereas now they're a lot more advanced, but they take up far less space. But somebody had to build them and somebody had to start somewhere. And he has a friendship with a, another software engineer by the name of Benny Lowey, who's played by Seth Rogen. But there is a deep, dark family secret that Sammy discovers about his parents and his unofficial Uncle Benny that he finds out through filmmaking. And there's also a very brief but very memorable performance in here by an uncle that Sammy didn't know that 
he had, or more like a granduncle, but he finds out when his grandmother dies, and his uncle's name is Uncle Boris, and he's played by Judd Hirsch. Now, Judd Hirsch has been acting for a very long time, but it's been a, a long time since he's been nominated for an Academy Award. He was previously nominated for an Academy Award for his supporting role as a psychiatrist in Robert Redford's Ordinary People, which won Best Picture. Judd Hirsch deserved to be nominated for Best Supporting Actor for that film, but he was in it for much longer than he is in The Fablemans. But the five minutes that Judd Hirsch is in this film, he's amazing. I just felt bad for Paul Dano, who was not nominated for this role, because Paul Dano, to me, is, first of all, an underrated actor, even though he's been nominated for an Oscar before. But in this film, I think he carries um, the film very well and acts very well alongside Gabriel LaBelle, so much so that Gabriel LaBelle, unfortunately, kind of uh, suffers in comparison. But Judd Hirsch, when he's on screen, is definitely very dynamic, and he also serves as a catalyst for the next part of the movie, probably the next two-thirds. And I liked Judd Hirsch's performance in this movie so much that when he goes away, and I'm not going to tell you how he goes away, I wanted him to come back, and I was actually disappointed that he didn't. But... Again, this movie certainly is, it might not be one of Steven Spielberg's best films, but it's certainly not his worst. I think if you were to tally up Steven Spielberg's best and worst films, The Fablemans would be on probably the better side of it, but it is definitely anchored by amazing performances in this film by Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, and Judd Hirsch. I did, even though I I like Seth Rogen, I did feel like he was miscast in this film. And there's a certain chemistry that Seth Rogen is supposed to have with another person in this film that I just didn't really see. And Seth Rogen is somebody who does generally have a surprising amount of chemistry um, in other films with his other co-stars. I just didn't quite see it in this one. So the Fablemans is definitely a film for people who love movies. And that could explain why it's been nominated for seven Oscars. I think in the, in the areas where it's really great, particularly when it comes to Judd Hirsch's performance, it's amazing. I also thought that Paul Dano was underappreciated in this film, but I think he anchored the film very well. Michelle Williams has also been nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role, and while she is good in this film, I my, my main grievance with her role is that, or rather, maybe it's because of the um, award for which she's been nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role, because I thought her role was definitely more supporting. Granted, she's in the movie a lot longer than Judd Hirsch is, and probably equally so to uh, Paul Dano, but I felt like when Gabriel LaBelle is you know, front and center with his character, or at least as a teenager, I, I feel like Michelle Williams should have been considered a supporting actress, but nonetheless, this was an excellent film for which I give my rating of a marginal knockout. It's just, it is a very good film for filmmakers. I think that... The story was not only dynamic, but it also, you didn't quite know where it was going. And I think it ended on 
the right note without being, in Steven Spielberg's case, self-congratulatory. I just think that when he's come out with other films that were, you know, more dynamic, like, for example, Schindler's List, War Horse, Lincoln, and then he comes out with this film that's a bit more personal... Sometimes passion projects don't quite connect with the audience members as much as they do with the people who are making them. And I'm sorry to say, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But the Fablemans, I think, hit the right, when it hit the right notes, it hit them very well. I just don't think, it's one of Steven Spielberg's better films, but I don't think it's his best. But still, it's a knockout in my book. A marginal knockout, but a knockout nonetheless. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of February 13th through 17th, 2023. And this is Valentine's Day week, but it doesn't seem like a lot of films that are coming out right now are, shall we say, a good fit for the Valentine's Day holiday. But, you know, if you particularly hate Valentine's Day, then this is your week, I guess. So on February 15th, which is a Wednesday this year, 2023, there is one film that is going to be released in theaters nationwide, and the movie is called Marlowe. And Marlowe takes place in late 1930s Bay City, where a brooding, down-on-his-luck detective is hired to find the ex-lover of a glamorous heiress, which sounds a bit like Chinatown, but uh, Bay City is a city in Michigan. I've never been. I've been to Michigan, but not to Bay City. But it's cool to see a film like this, which is definitely... Uh, neo-noir take place in um, a, a city that I presume is in Michigan, not in L.A. or New York or where a lot of noirs take place. Starring in this movie is uh, Liam Neeson as the titular Philip Marlowe. Also co-starring in this film is Diane Kruger, Jessica Lang. Adewale Akinoyu Agbaji, uh, Cole Meany, Alan Cumming, Danny Houston, and several other noteworthy actors. And you might remember if you heard my best and worst list of 2022, worst movies of 2022, I had a category dedicated to Liam Neeson that was called Liam Neeson Enough Already. And the reason I had that category is because Liam Neeson was in Two films that were bad because they were so forgettable because Liam Neeson was playing the same old tough guy who had one more case before he retired again. And when Liam Neeson's character met his fate in these films, 
I didn't feel one way or the other because I was just sick and tired of seeing Liam Neeson do the same movie again and again and again. But Marlowe seems to be a film that is better in a lot of aspects and far less cliche. And it's also based on previous material, not to mention that it is directed by a prolific Oscar nominated, oh, excuse me, Oscar winning director. Um, Well, actually, this uh, director was nominated for The Crying Game back in 1993. He didn't win for Best Director. Uh, I believe Clint Eastwood did for directing Unforgiven, but he did win for Best Adapted Screenplay, excuse me, Best Original Screenplay for The Crying Game, which was very well deserved because The Crying Game was an excellent original film. And it was one that when it came out, I wasn't old enough to see it. And if I was old enough to see it, I definitely wouldn't have appreciated it. But in any event, Neil Jordan is directing uh, this film, and it's based on a novel written by John Banville, which I presume is also called Marlowe. And the character was actually created by noir writer Raymond Chandler. So Marlowe is a film that looks like and a more inspired choice for a film than Liam Neeson has been making over the last five years. And it's a movie that I probably will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. On February 17th, 2023, which is a Friday, there are several big movies come out, coming out, and the biggest film, unquestionably, that's going to be coming out is Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. And this is the third Uh, Ant-Man film where Paul Rudd is reprising his role as a character that honestly, when I first saw the original Ant-Man film uh, back in 2015, I didn't have high hopes for it because I like Paul Rudd. I don't, Paul Rudd is kind of like Dolly Parton in the sense that I don't know of anybody who dislikes him. How could you not like him? But at the same time, Ant-Man, I didn't know how dynamic a character that would be. So he can shrink down to the size of an ant. Who cares? But fortunately, Ant-Man and its sequel, Ant-Man and the Wasp, proved me wrong. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is the 31st film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. A film series that, frankly, over the last year, with the exception of uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, has shown some signs of sputtering and stalling. But, of course... Black Panther Wakanda Forever made up for the other Marvel Cinematic Universe movies that came out last year. But I do have not high expectations, but high hopes for Quantumania. And maybe the description of this film will give me an idea of what Quantumania is. So here's the um, premise of the film. Scott Lang and Hope Van Dyne who are played or reprised by Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly, respectively, along with Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne, explore the quantum realm where they interact with strange creatures and embark on an adventure that goes beyond the limits of what they thought was possible. So that doesn't really tell me very much, but I presume that Quantumania is a, a place within this um, other, uh, the quantum realm, and there are other people and creatures within it, but that's all I can pretty much tell you. But as I said, Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly are reprising their roles from the previous films as are 
Jonathan Majors, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Michael Douglas, amongst other people. Also appearing in this film is Bill Murray, making his debut in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He plays a character by the name of Kryler. I'm not sure if he's supposed to be funny, like Bill Murray generally is, but I'm willing to give Bill Murray a chance. I'm willing to give everyone a chance, but rest assured, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is a film that I will see, and I will review it for you on my next show. Another film that is probably not going to do as well as Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is a film that is called Who Are You People? And it sounds like it's a question, but typical of film titles that are in the form of questions that doesn't have a question mark at the end. Apparently, this is bad luck to put question marks in titles of movies. It hasn't stopped some other people before, but some other movies with question marks in them, like What Planet Are You From, were critical and commercial failures, whereas other ones like Who Framed Roger Rabbit and What's Eating Gilbert Grape were critical and commercial favorites. But any event, Who Are You People is about a 16-year-old by the name of Alex who is um, a woman who's played by Ema Horvath and after a botched attempt to seduce her English teacher at the age of 16, ooh, that's really bad, um, Alex runs away from boarding school to seek out the biological father her mother always kept hidden and learn the dark secrets of her roots. This is a movie that is written and directed by Ben Epstein. As I said previously, the main character of this film is played by Ema Horvath. And some of the supporting actors in the film include Reed Miller, Alyssa Milano, who we haven't seen in a movie in a while, and Devin Sawa, amongst others. Some other supporting actors include Yeardley Smith, who is the voice of Lisa Simpson and will probably be for the next 10 years judging from the fact that The Simpsons will never be canceled, and also John Ailes. And I won't get into the other people who are in this film, but this is a film that looks like it's going to be in limited release because it doesn't stand a chance against Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on February 17th is a movie called The Weapon. And I can already tell from one of the co-stars of this film that A, it's unlikely you'll be seeing this in a theater near you, and B, it's unlikely it's a film that's going to do well. I'm talking, of course, about one of the supporting actors in the film who is Cuba Gooding Jr., and this movie does not star Cuba Gooding Jr. as much as co-star him, the star of the film is an actor by the name of Tony Shiana, and he plays a one-man killing machine by the name of Dallas, who is on a mysterious rampage. His attack on biker gangs and meth labs anger the Vegas mob boss, who's holding Dallas's girlfriend hostage. But who is Dallas working for? Even torture won't make him talk, and he won't stop until justice is served. So this movie not only co-stars Cuba Gooding Jr., who I presume might be the mob boss, although Cuba Gooding Jr. is a little too likable on screen to be a mob boss, and maybe if he's not particularly likable, given the recent trouble he's been in, he might not be particularly believable as a mob boss either. But co-starring in this film is Bruce Dern, Sean Patrick Flannery, 
Anna Lynn McCord, who is presumably Dallas's girlfriend, and Jack Casey, amongst other people. So The Weapon is a film that I believe will be released in theaters in addition to streaming because this seems like one of these films that I would rather stay home and watch rather than go to the movies to see. But I might see it. I'm not guaranteeing that I will. If I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters is a film that is called 88 and note, noted that it's going to be it's subject to being released in theaters on February 17th, which is Friday. It's about a financial director for a Democratic super PAC who uh, behind a front runner presidential candidate who investigates donations uncovering a conspiracy theory, which sounds very uh, juicy, to be honest with you. And it's directed by a mononym director whose name is, I believe you pronounce it, Aramose. He is uh, 43 years old, or he will be 43 as of April. And some of the other films he has directed include The Locksmith, Nostradamus, and The Temp Agency, none of which I've actually seen. So... This film, I don't know why it's called 88. I don't know if it takes place in 1988 or what. And I um, think it's taking a risk in making the villain a Democrat. or a Demo- They call it a Democratic candidate. But either way, that's not a film you usually hear about uh, that's being made in Hollywood, which is notoriously liberal. Um, notorious depending on your point of view. But... It's a film that certainly looks interesting, but given the cast of actors, some of whom I know, some of whom I don't, I am not guaranteeing that that this film is going to be coming out in a theater near me, but it's worth a look, honestly, from the poster as well as the premise. And it's a film that I will try to see, but if I don't see it, I um, won't review it for you on next week's show. But if I do, you know how it works. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.